Mansfield, for those of you who don't know me, I serve as an elder on staff here at Missio, and I uh, just want to welcome each of you again this morning. It's so great to be here uh, to learn from God's Word together. It's my joy this morning to be able to open it up with you. We are continuing our series through the book of 1 John, which we have entitled Confidence. Uh, and in the text today, John gives his readers confidence in the truth in order to fortify them against deception. I'm excited to open this up with you today. Would you turn with me? We're going to be looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And we'll have it up on the screen for you here as well. First John 2, 18 through 27. Hear now God's word. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you've received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word, for how you have revealed yourself clearly through it. And Father, for how you've given us knowledge of everything pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, it's our prayer that even now, as we explore this passage, that your word would abide in us and that we would abide in your truth, God. And in so doing, Lord, that we ourselves would abide in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, I see a lot of unfamiliar faces, and so there's a chance that you don't know this certain fact about me. I used to be a banker. Before I started in full-time ministry, I worked in banking for the better part of a decade. Uh, and for a good portion of that time, I worked as a bank teller. And so over the course of those years, uh, I earned a lot of cash handling experience. Uh, and as you can imagine, over the course of my banking career, I ran across my fair share of counterfeit bills. 
Now, some of them were more obvious than others, and some of them, man, you really had to look close to not be deceived. Uh, But when I started in banking, the person who trained me right away, she said, look, Nate, you are going to get counterfeits. It's inevitable. Now, she wasn't telling me this to scare me, right? She was seeking to build up my defense. And she showed me the banker's tried and true method for spotting a counterfeit. And do you want to know what it is? Hold it up to the real thing. Hold it up to the real thing. As it turns out, the real thing has characteristic trademarks that are able to distinguish it as genuine. You might be familiar with some of these. You hold up a bill to the light, you see watermarks, you see a security strip in it. Uh, There's tight concentric lines all throughout the bill that you can't replicate with like an inkjet printer, right? Even the chemical composition of the paper itself is able to testify to the genuineness of that note. We've just read a warning from John to the early church that there would be, and in fact already had been, many who would break off from among Christ's people and reject the true Christ. Counterfeits. In fact, these churches, by the time that John wrote this, had already been reeling from these divisive factions breaking off and then attempting to deceive the faithful followers of Christ that had remained. And as John tells them this, he's not trying to scare them, right? It's like the person who trained me at the bank. He's seeking to build up their defense. And he does this by holding up these counterfeits, these imposters, these antichrists, as he calls them, to the real thing, a genuine disciple of Christ, whom John affirmed his audience to be. As he does this, as he does this counterfeit test, there's one trademark which stands out above the rest, which is able to distinguish a genuine follower of Christ, and it is this. A genuine follower of Christ abides in him. A genuine follower of Christ abides in him. That's really what this whole passage is about today. Abide. Well, what does it mean to abide? Merriam-Webster has a very helpful definition. It says to abide means to endure without yielding. True disciples endure in Christ without yielding. And as such, John's warning here really becomes less of a warning and really more of a call for all of Christ's people everywhere to abide. And in this passage, we'll see that abiding in Christ means no less than these three things. True disciples abide in Christ by abiding in fellowship with his people. They abide in fellowship with his people. Number two, True disciples abide in Christ by abiding in the truth of his word. And number three, true disciples abide in Christ by abiding in the work of his spirit. They abide in fellowship with his people, they abide in his truth, and they abide in the work of his spirit. So let's begin, let's dissect this this morning. John starts off by stating that these antichrists coming are a sign of the times, right? He says in verse 18, Children, it is the last hour and you've heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This comes on the heels of last week. We heard Levi preaching on the previous passage and John ends that by saying that the world is passing away, 
right? And the truth is, uh, ever since the resurrection of Christ, we have been in the last hour of redemptive history. This is the hour of redemptive history where Christ uses his chosen instrument, the church, to administer the gospel, making disciples of all nations. And as we endure, as we sojourn in this last hour of redemptive history, we eagerly anticipate what is next, and that is the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. We're in the last hour still. And scripture warns us that this particular hour of redemptive history, it was going to be marked by increasing lawlessness. Jesus himself warns that during this period, many would come in his name attempting deceive, to deceive his people. Uh, John here references the Antichrist, a figure that we read about uh, who comes about in the end, who uh, rises up and claims to be God and seeks to deceive the elect. And I love the imagery that we see in the New Testament where Jesus defeats him by his mere breath. He brings him to nothing. But John is saying in that vein, in that spirit, many have already come attempting to deceive. And so he's saying to the church, like he's not panicking, right? And he's saying to the church, we knew this was coming, right? It's like my trainer when I started as a teller. Counterfeits are coming and when they came, I was prepared. What was my defense? Look to what is true to distinguish that which is false. And that's what John begins to do here right away. These imposters failed the test. Verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. How do we know that they weren't of them? It keeps going. If they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But he goes on to say that their going out makes it obvious that they are not of them, right? They went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. Who's not of us? All of them, all who departed. John wants the distinction to be clear, if you think about it, these people who are trying to deceive the church, they want to blur the lines, right? They operate by deception, and their target is the body of Christ, right? They want them to think, ah, we got some common ground. And chances are, I mean, they broke off from the church, so they know the language to use, right? They probably knew some of these people that they were trying to influence. They were probably people whom, at one point, they assumed fellowship with, that can get confusing, right? And so John makes it very clear that hard and fast lines must be drawn in order to prevent them from being deceived. And so basically he's saying, listen, let me make it clear for you. Anybody who has gone out from us was never one of us to begin with. So don't assume that you share any kind of fellowship whatsoever with these individuals. Don't think that there's any kind of unifying bond between you and these imposters, by their going out, they make it clear that they are not genuine disciples of Christ. On the flip side of that, though, their going out makes it clear who is a genuine follower, right? Verse 19 says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Those that are of Christ, stick it out with the body of Christ, right? Those who abide in Christ abide in fellowship with his people. This is kind of a blanket term, but what does that even mean? 
Well, if you look at the New Testament and how it calls us to live as the body of Christ, we get this amazing picture of saved individuals affirming one another in their faith, of serving and loving one another by stewarding and practicing their spiritual gifts, people engaging the word of God together and breaking bread together and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We see shepherds who are overseeing the flock and caring for their souls we see all these things. It's, it's life together. It's Christ and his bound together people. This isn't an exhaustive list of what it looks like, but anybody who is a member of Christ's body is called to live in the context of the body of Christ. True disciples abide in Christ by abiding in the fellowship with his people. I think of Hebrews 10.25, the Eastwood MC did a study of Hebrews and he's just like, come on, keep on, keep your eye on the finish line, right? And he says this in 10.25, let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And listen to this, we said it's the last hour, right? All the more as you see the day drawing nearer, abide in fellowship. If you abide in Christ, you will abide in fellowship with his people. John continues focusing uh, on the genuine. And in verse 20, he says, but you, but you, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. A huge part of what sets Christ's people apart as genuine is they've been anointed by God himself. How's that for a confidence booster? They've been anointed. Uh, Christ's people are Christ's people because God has made them Christ's people. He's established them in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, we see that in establishing them in Christ, he sets his seal upon them and he gives them the indwelling Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And we read here this morning that this anointing that they've received from God has itself provided them knowledge of who God is, of the truth. He says, says in verse 21, I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. In other words, he's saying God himself has seen to it that you know the truth. And in knowing the truth, you can distinguish the lie because the lies do not coincide with the truth. No lie is of the truth. Now, what is truth anymore, right? Who even knows, right? Our postmodern culture has muddied it up so much. But John, I promise you, is not giving an Oprah Winfrey at the Golden Globes, go embrace and live your truth speech here. No, he's talking about an ob object objective truth, an explicit truth of the identity of Christ and the truth of his gospel. God's anointing, his spirit has caused John's audience to embrace this truth. And so John can say it's obvious then what the lie is. And to make the point that it's obvious, he asks this question, who's a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? I picture him following up that statement with, am I right or am I right? Right? But look, that's exactly who they were dealing with here. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. These divisive factions that are broken off of the particular churches that John was talking to, they were denying the Christ. They were denying his deity. 
They were denying that he came in the flesh. They were denying the account of the apostles. They were rejecting the teaching of the church, and in doing so, they were rejecting the true son as he himself had been revealed. In all of this, they're proving that they never had fellowship with God or fellowship with his people because verse 23 says, no one who denies the son has the father. Counterfeits. Conversely, genuine disciples confess Christ as he's been revealed. The verse goes on to say, whoever confesses the son, guess what? They have the father. Those whom God has anointed with his Holy Spirit confess the Christ as he's been revealed and in doing so they enjoy fellowship with Jesus. They enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit. They enjoy fellowship with God the Father. And John gives a charge to those who would say that's true of them. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did they hear from the beginning? the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ and his gospel, that blessed message that the apostles handed down about what they themselves saw, what they themselves heard, which they themselves had touched with their hands, the word of life, God, the Son, coming in the flesh to restore fellowship with God the Father for lost sinners. God who is light, who in him is no darkness at all, sending his son that by his blood we might be forgiven because guess what? We were all lost in darkness and any who embrace him by faith, he's now resurrected and stands as their advocate between unworthy sinners and a holy and just God if we embrace him by faith. This is what they heard from the beginning. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, he continues, then you too will abide. You will endure without yielding in the Son and in the Father. John Calvin put it this way. They in whom God's truth remains, they remain in God. John's calling his audience to nourish the seed that had been planted upon their hearing and responding to the gospel. In a sense, he's saying it's not enough to simply know it. I'm calling you to abide in it. I'm calling you to let it abide in you. Here's the deal. The devil's tactics have not changed. He is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. How did he get Eve? Did God really say? The deceiver is going to attempt to put cracks in the foundation of the very truth of God's word. They're going to get us to question, did God really say that? We must abide in the truth of God's word. It's how we cling to Christ. Jesus himself showed that all of scripture pointed to him and to the gospel. This message that John's audience had heard is so wonderfully foreshadowed in God's word. It's so wonderfully revealed 
and unfolded in God's word. It's so wonderfully expounded upon in God's word. Second Timothy tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God himself and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, including the work of abiding in Christ and resisting the lies of the enemy. Abiding in God's truth means that it's abiding in us. So you might ask, well, what does this look like? Well, what kind of activities and postures cause God's words to abide in us? Reading it, engaging it regularly, seeking to store it in our hearts and minds that we might reflect on it regularly, engaging it with others, sitting under the sound teaching of God's word as it's preached. These are all part of it. But in all of these, God uses his word to transform us by the renewing of our minds that we might rightly understand him, that we might rightly understand who Christ is, that we might rightly understand the truth of the gospel, and by rightly understanding these things, we might rightly expose that which is false. It's an ongoing process to the end. And for those who endure in Christ to the end, those who are true disciples of Christ, what's the promise that God has made to them? Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. We must abide in the truth of God's word. As he goes on, John is explicit again in writing, telling him why he's been writing. He says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's seeking to fortify their defenses. The things that he shared with them should already have boosted their confidence, but to bring it home, he once again points them to the anointing that they have received. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Verse 27, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Strange comment, right? First off, it's great. The anointing that you've received from him, it abides in you. It endures without yielding in you. But you have no need that anyone should teach you? Well, to be clear, John is not making a case here that teaching is useless. Lest we forget the fact that, guess what? He's teaching us right now, right? He would absolutely affirm that we need teachers of the word so that we can affirm that which the Spirit has taught us, right? But what John is getting at by saying that you have no need that anyone should teach you is that he's not telling them any new information and what he's just told them. These are things that the Spirit himself has already suggested and revealed and caused his people to embrace, right? The things he shared with them here, they understand, they testify to these things because God himself has caused it to resonate within their hearts. This is a wonderful fulfillment of a promise that we saw God make through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God says this. Listen to these words. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their hearts. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer... Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, 
know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The anointing of God's Spirit, it causes God's people to know Him. In the same way, 2 Peter tells us that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge that his spirit has given us, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The spirit guides us in the way of true life and true godliness. In verse 27, John continues, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The anointing of the Holy Spirit causes us to abide in him. The anointing of the Holy Spirit causes us to abide and function in fellowship. The anointing of the Holy Spirit causes God's word to abide in us and us to abide in the truth of his word. And when we've done all to abide, guess what? It teaches us to abide then as such true disciples in christ abide in christ by abiding in the work of his spirit they abide in fellowship they abide in the truth of his word they abide in the work of his holy spirit and here's the deal if you're here today and you have embraced christ by faith because of the work of the holy spirit all these reasons for confidence for john's audience can be yours today Two, because these promises are true of you. And abiding in the Spirit simply means living in cooperation with these promises. Listen to these promises that are true of you. Verse 20, you've been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. Verse 21, God himself has caused you to know the truth. Verse 22, because you know the truth, because you have access to the truth, because the Spirit unfolds the truth for you, you are fortified against the lies and deception of the enemy. Verse 23, because you confess the Son, you have fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Verse 24, as his truth abides in you, you abide and continue fellowship with God. Verse 25, as one who abides in Christ, God himself has promised you eternal life. Verse 27, God himself abides in you by his spirit. He endures in you without yielding and in abiding in you, he teaches you and causes you to abide in him. God sees to it that if you're his true disciple, you will endure. He will, as we sang, hold you fast till your faith is turned to sight. This is why this is a trademark which sets true disciples apart from a counterfeit. The ultimate test, they endure in Christ until the end. Maybe you're here today and you would say, I don't abide in Christ. I've never thought about 
who scripture said he is. Uh, I haven't considered the message that John's audience had heard, the gospel. If that's you today, I would encourage you to trust in him, to trust that Jesus is God's means for salvation. He is God made flesh who dwelt among us, who reconciles us back to the Father because we were dead and lost in sin and darkness. He, the only perfect sinless one, laid down his life that by his death, by his shed blood, we may be forgiven and he ascended on high and he now stands as an advocate between unworthy sinners and a holy and just God for any who put their faith in him. I would encourage you today to embrace that truth by faith. If you do, you have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with his people. I'd also encourage you to heed the warning of this text. To fail to embrace this truth is to deny it. It's to deny the true Son. It is to deny the true gospel. And those who deny the Christ have no fellowship with Jesus, have no fellowship with the Holy Spirit, have no fellowship with the Father. Embrace Jesus as he's been revealed in Scripture. Embrace the truth of the gospel as it's been revealed in Scripture, and you will have fellowship with God and the promise of eternal life. For those of us here today who are in Christ, Look, we're in the last hour of the last hour. (laughs) John, almost 2,000 years ago, was saying, look, it's the last hour. It's the last hour of the last hour. We are closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. And I know that you see it and you feel it every time you go on social media, every time you turn on the television, every time you hear conversations, every time you see the, the bestsellers that are out there, all these things. We are in a time of... It's been marked with lawlessness, increasing lawlessness. We live in an age in which the progressive, moralistic decline of our culture is deconstructing just about everything to the point where we have no handle on truth. And the pressure is on the church to get on the right side of history. The pressure is on God's people to get with the program and to just deal with it. This is the new norm. I've watched as people that I know, people that I thought that I had fellowship with, and I've watched as people who are figures in Christian industry, writers, musicians. I feel like even just over the course of the past year, it's been multiplied. I've watched as people that I've known have questioned the very foundations of truth and have embraced doubt and disillusionment. And I've seen this type of behavior celebrated, credited as enlightenment. It's noble. It's virtuous. And we see this happening, we're exposed to this happening on all kinds of platforms, more so than John's audience. All you gotta do is log on to Facebook and we're exposed to this. A worship worship leader colleague of mine uh, who I was loosely acquainted with um, recently documented his own deconstruction of, of faith on Facebook in real time. And it started with, he was reading these outside sources that were claiming that the church all these hundreds of years 
had been interpreting uh, the scripture about homosexuality and, and gender and all that completely wrong. A crack in his foundation. It forced him to question the infallibility of scripture as the authority of God's truth. It forced him to ask the question, did God really say? Reimagining the truth led to multiple layers of confusion for this young man. And what he was left with was so convoluted it was impossible to make sense of. And the deconstruction of his faith ended with him proclaiming on Facebook, I don't even know what I believe anymore. And here's the trickiest part. We're exposed to this all the time. I'm sure that as I say this, you know somebody in your circle that this has happened to. And we're constantly bombarded by this. And here's the thing. You think about the deception that we're reading about and we think about it like somebody knocking on our door and trying to sell uh, their ideology on us, right? But this guy doesn't even have to have contact with people and through this whole discourse, how many people saw this and began to question the infallibility of God's word? You see how the enemy works? You see how the lines are blurred? Do you see how this deception happens? And you and I are bombarded with it all the time. Turn on the TV, Facebook, it's everywhere. I don't have to tell you that. You know this. And we become to be desensitized by it. It can wear us down. Friends, now more than ever, we have a great need to abide. To stick it out together as the body of Christ. To endure in the truth of God's word. To resist the pressure of the world that would call us to look at Christ and the gospel through a worldview or an ideology or a theory or a social platform. We must view Christ and the gospel as it's been revealed in scripture. If we don't, we stand on the precipice of exchanging the truth of God for a lie of creating a Christ who looks like us, a God in our own image, and a gospel that's absolutely worthless. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. We must abide. We would all like to flatter ourselves, right, that we're not in the camp who would be led astray. Now, if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, God will hold you fast. He's guarding you for an inheritance that will be revealed in the last time. And guess what? God doesn't lose a single thing that he holds on to, right? But I want to warn you in this. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit never tells you that cruise control is enough. The Holy Spirit causes you to be diligent in fellowship. The Holy Spirit causes you to be diligent in the study of God's word. And the Holy Spirit causes you to be diligent in keeping in step with him. So we need to ask ourselves, are we abiding? Well, are we abiding in fellowship with his people? Or have we established ourselves on the fringes? One way to to figure this out is to ask yourself, have you been proactively involved in helping your brothers and sisters pursue the Lord? Now, I know this is a weird question to ask in the midst of a pandemic and that there are some who can't be here and have legitimate reasons to not be here I get that. But you also have means. If you're listening to this, everybody in audio land, hello, greetings from downtown. (laughs) You have means to engage the body still. 
I, I know, Zoom is terrible, I hate it, I can't wait till it's over and we can be in person all the time, right? But you have means to continue to engage the body. You have means to continue to engage the word with other people. Have we used this time to just go MIA? Have we used this time to develop bad habits that put us only on the receiving end of the benefits of fellowship and in doing so, not really practicing true fellowship? Have we rejected the idea of being tethered to the local body? Saying, you know what? I'm committed to you. I exist for you. Have we rejected the idea of knowing who our leaders are and who we're to submit to? Abiding in Christ means no less than abiding in fellowship with his people. Have we abided in the truth of his word? Or have we neglected it? And look, I get it. Like, I have lots of conversations with people Oftentimes, we neglect God's word because we get frustrated when we don't understand it. We get frustrated when we don't get something out of it. It feels like work sometimes, right? If that's you, I would encourage you. The best advice I could give to you today is to not stop. Don't let that frustration cause you to neglect God's word. Continue to pursue it. Ask God by his spirit to open up wonderful things from his word to you. Know the tools and resources that you have. I would encourage you, look up inductive study questions. If you look those up, print them out, stick them in your Bible, and these questions will help you to rightly observe the text, to rightly interpret the text, and to rightly apply it to your life. Engage God's word with others in biblical community, missional communities, formation groups, one-on-one discipling. I tell you what, we have, we've been promoting the reading plan that we have available on our website. If you engage in that, guess what? You're engaging God's word with at least 100 other people who are going through the same thing who can talk about it with you, help you to understand it. And, of course, regularly sit under the sound teaching of God's word. We must abide in God's word. And lastly, are we abiding in the Holy Spirit as we abide in Christ? And this is really tethered to abiding in God's truth because the Holy Spirit only guides us in God's truth. Are we familiar enough with the truth where we hear the Spirit's prompting and discernment over what is true and what is false? Or have we allowed everything else to fill our minds, to fill our hearts, to dominate our thoughts where it's quenching the Spirit? Are we abiding in Christ? Are we living in cooperation with the things that God has established for those who are truly his? My prayer for everybody in this room is that we would together abide in cooperation with the Spirit as we abide in Christ. And that as we do so, you and I would endure in this race that's set before us You and I would keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Friends, let's abide together in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans. You've given us fellowship with you. 
You've given your people your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us everything that we need as it pertains to life and to godliness. Lord, your people ultimately abide in you because you caused them to do it. We thank you for these truths, and God, we pray that you would cause us to live in cooperation with them as we abide in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise that he has given us, the promise that stands for all who would trust in him, fellowship with you and eternal life, God. May we keep our gaze fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in the name of him. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's respond as we look to Jesus Christ, our sure, our steady anchor. We sing often, we anchor ourselves on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We hold fast to the firm foundation that is the bedrock of God's word. And so we cling to that. Let's sing that truth this morning as we go out from this place. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you, oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will still give you aid, I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify you to your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway should lie, my grace all sufficient will be your supply. The flame will not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine.
Let's take a seat. 